You are listening to the Inclusive Classroom series for teachers and educators. Inclusion Ed provides evidence-based, research-informed teaching practices and tools to support diverse learners in inclusive classrooms. In this limited series, you'll learn about neurodiversity and anxiety in the classroom, foundation practices for early career teachers, and how to positively engage families. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Cheryl Mengen, and I head up Knowledge Translation Autism CRC. I'm your host for today's webinar, Neurodiversity in the Classroom. This is the second of five webinars in our Inclusive Classroom series, which will be running through February and March. It is my absolute joy to welcome you this afternoon. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we're meeting today, which for me, that's the Turrbal and the Yagara people of Mianjin. I recognize their continuing connection to land, sea and community. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present and also extend that respect to any First Nations people who are on the line today. So just a couple of notes for housekeeping. If you're looking for a space where you can find evidence-based and research-informed strategies for inclusive teaching practice, look no further than inclusioned.edu.au. If you haven't already registered, you can register for free and check out our full range of classroom-based practices, resources, and information. So let's get on with it. Today, we're going to be discussing neurodiversity in the classroom. And I've been looking forward to this webinar for weeks. It's my absolute privilege to introduce you to three amazing autistic educators and longtime friends of Inclusion Ed. Dr. Emma Goodall from Positive Partnerships, Trudy Bartlett from Marsden State High School and Geraldine Robertson. But let me tell you just a little bit more about our panelists. So Emma Goodall is an author, a keynote speaker, researcher, and disability and education consultant. She works both publicly and privately to facilitate best life outcomes possible for everyone, including autistic people with a range of support needs. Emma is widely published and writes for both academic journals and mainstream publishers in the areas of autism, education, and disability. Our second panelist, Trudy Bartlett, is a proud autistic advocate. She is an inclusion teacher at Australia's largest, largest school, Marsden State High. Trudy is passionate about making schools inclusive and recently won the Teach X Award for outstanding contribution to school community for her work with students with disability and students in the LGBTQIA community. Last but certainly not least, we have the wonderful Geraldine Robertson, an autistic educator and consultant. Geraldine has a wealth of experience as a mainstream classroom teacher, supporting neurodiverse students from kindergarten right through to grade 11. This includes collaboration with students with multiple support needs, their families and teachers across school districts. So thank you, Emma, Geraldine and Trudy for joining us today. And to our audience, please believe me when I say we are in for a real treat and a fantastic discussion about inclusive education and neurodiversity in the classroom. So for the next hour, please sit back, settle in and enjoy. So we're gonna start with some fundamentals here. And that is what is neurodiversity? What's neurodivergence? 
and how does autism fit into that? And Trudy, I believe you've already prepared a bit of an overview for us. So I'm going to stop talking right now and hand over to you as the expert. So take it away, Trudy. So um, I've got a few slides here to just talk a bit about what neurodiversity is. Um, all right, neurodiversity is an umbrella term used to identify a group of neurological conditions that result in them being atypical from the remainder of the population. The image on the right shows some, some of the different conditions that are considered neurodivergent. So we have ADHD, autism, dyscalculia, synesthesia, bipolar, seizure disorders, mental illnesses, and there's a range of them that fit under that umbrella. The left part of this image shows a person with OCD another person with ADHD, another person who is dyslexic, and a and person who is autistic. Each of these people is neurodivergent. As shown in the previous infogra infographic, there are lots of ways people are neurodivergent. The person in the middle is neurotypical, which means they have a typical brain neurology. The group on the right is a neurodiverse group, as there is a diversity of brain neurology within the group. Only a group can be neurodiverse. An individual on their own cannot. The diversity of neurology in today's classrooms, due to their brain's neurology, students have varying learning and support needs. Students have to have their various needs considered. Students may require the use of a range of strategies and all students can benefit from the strategies that support neurodivergent students. We're here to talk a bit more about autism. So autism is a neurodevelopmental condition, meaning it's a condition that's affected by how the neurological pathways in your brain develop. These pathways impact things like social skills, your memory, ability to focus. Autistic people develop differently to non-autistic people. Autistic individuals think, move, interact, sense and process differently to what people might expect. Autistic traits can take a lot of different forms and look different depending on the person. Autism is not a line from autistic to non-autistic. There are many traits that make up the spectrum and there can be, and they're, they may be more present in different people or feature in different points in a person's life. This can also differ from day to day as well. Autistic people are an important part of the world and autism has always existed. Autistic people are born autistic and will be autistic their whole lives. In the graphic on the right, at the top, you'll see what people think the autism spectrum looks like, starting with less autistic at one end and more autistic at the other end. The bottom is more like what it can actually look like, where the profile of an autistic person shown with a rating in each of the elements. The number one thing is, as Dr. Stephen Shaw states, if you have met one autistic person, you have met one autistic person. Thanks, Cheryl. Thank you, Trudy. Uh, that's really helpful, I think, because we often, um, you know, talk about these different terms. And so that was a really helpful overview. And I guess um, I really want to echo what Trudy said there about the diversity with autistic people, including students. And, and that is, if you've met one person on the autism spectrum, you've met one person on the autism spectrum. And it's so true. Um, so I'm going to ask our other panelists to please turn on their camera <laughs> so we can see your wonderful faces. Um, and start some questions, if that all right. So obviously the first step in supporting neurodivergent students is understanding what kind of support they may actually need. So the question to our panel, starting with Emma, is 
how can teachers understand the strengths and support needs of their neurodivergent students? So Emma. Thanks, Cheryl. It's such a good question because there are lots of different ways to do this. So one of the ways that I like to do this because I'm quite methodical is I like to have a tool that I work through to look at different areas. So currently um, I'm using the Positive Partnerships planning tool to do this with a number of different families um, and schools. And it's a, a free tool that anybody can use online or downloadable. And it looks at six different areas of functioning. And what you're doing is you're looking at, okay, what are observations and examples from this child? So we're not just guessing about a child, we're actually looking for observations and examples and then how that impacts the child. And then, really focusing within those observations and examples on not just support needs, but strengths. Because anybody's strength is fantastic, but autistic people's strengths really are our strong points. That's what we use to support us in all the other areas that we struggle with. So for me, that's one of the ways I really like to do that. Um, and it's just nice to have something really methodical that you can just work all the way through. Thank you, Emma. And we will put links to the resources that Emma said from Positive Partnerships as well um, on the, the recording. But I, I'd love to ask your view, Geraldine, around the same question. How can teachers understand strengths and support needs of their neurodivergent students? Okay. Now, I'm like Emma in that I'm very methodical, but my autism means it's in a different way. So... I like to gather together all the information about the student, particularly the reports, the um, psychology report, the OT report, speech report, and read them because they contain enormously valuable information that often gets missed in busy classroom life and interactions. And they also have really good strategies not to follow Exactly, but to have there to consider and see how they will fit into that classroom, that parent's viewpoints and the student's viewpoints voice as well. So, for an example, um, if you see that a child's dyspraxic, you will right away know that that child isn't going to be able to write to learn. So you'll be looking at different strategies to support their learning instead of, say, the spelling that they write out a word five times maybe use their sensory strengths to learn to write letters in sand or to use Lego letters, things like that. So that's where, but I also agree with Emma in the, having a close meeting with the parents with all that information, yeah. Thank you, Geraldine. It really is very much context specific and individual student driven, isn't it? Mm. Um, Trudy, I welcome your thoughts. Um, so what I do is I try and try and get all the pieces of the puzzle of the student. So communicating with their parents to find out any information that they can provide, what their strengths are at home that might transfer into the school setting. Um, I'm a high school teacher, so um, students have up to six teachers. So we also communicate with the other teachers and see, you know, they might be struggling in my subject area, but they might be fine having success in another area and those strategies I could carry over into my classroom. Um, we have access to occupational therapists and other support services from external that come into the school and support our children. 
so we can reach out to them to get any reports and try and get any data that we can again collect off them. And then the last thing I would say is actually talking to the student and having a conversation and you know, go through that tool that Emma was talking about to try and gather as much information from them as possible and see what their strengths are to then be able to use them across the board. Thank you, Trudy. Um, I'm, I'm really keen to just dig into something or pick up on something that, that you guys have all mentioned around kind of different, different strengths of autistic students and kind of that idea that there are strengths and there's also things that might need a little bit more support. How common is that? And I'm going to point this at Emma because I know this is kind of your area of, of expertise. Um, how common is it that you have an autistic student that has kind of that spiky profile of strengths and things that they do need support in? I would say it is highly unusual to not have that kind of profile. So in a typically developing child, we would see that they're fairly similar in strengths or support needs across the curriculum. They might have one area that, that is weaker or stronger than the others. Whereas with um, neurodivergent kids, but particularly autistic kids, that can be a really spiky profile and it can really change. So you might um, be absolutely brilliant in one area and uh, in some but it can also be within an area so I used to be extremely good at maths um, as an example until I missed a key point in a class so when we were doing um, I can't even remember what it's called now the bit where you find the angles of um, triangles. Pythagoras? Yes so the teacher was doing opposite and adjacent and I missed that and I assumed the opposite was always opposite the hypotenuse. So I started getting them all wrong. And after that, I was really struggled in maths. And I couldn't do statistics because I couldn't do maths, numbers and words. So I can do numbers or words. I can't do numbers and words together. And that's really quite uncommon to have those kinds of um, unusual support needs within an area of strength but that's really common in autism if we miss a key concept but we don't realize we've missed it we can just start getting further and further behind um, but on the other side of that the flip side of that is where somebody is really interested in something they will keep digging and digging and digging until they know everything even as somebody who doesn't use speech or somebody who's unable to write will have this vast amount of knowledge that they can share if educators can find a way for them to share it. Thank you so much, Emma. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to, to kind of, I think there's a fantastic groundswell of support for inclusive education. We're thrilled to see it, of course. Um, and I also want to acknowledge that teachers do an amazing job supporting a whole range of learners in the classroom. Um, but we also know from our research and from our work with teachers that some people are still not quite sure how inclusive practice looks in your average mainstream classroom. Um, we have so many teachers in our audience who want to do the best they can and to support their neurodivergent students, and we thank you for that. 
Um, but we're really conscious, like, where do people start? So my question to the panel is how can support, how can teachers support their students in neurodiversity affirming ways? And I'll start with you again, Emma, and then go to Geraldine and then Trudy. So I think one of the most important things when teachers are trying to support students in neurodiversity affirming ways is to understand that when we recognise neurodiversity as just being a difference in the way that a brain works and there's no right or wrong way for a brain to work. So if we can say, okay, it's fine that people do maths differently. It's fine that people learn to read and write differently. Let's just find out how to help this person get those concepts. I think that in itself is really neurodiversity affirming. And then you get down to that individual child or young person and you look at that pattern of strengths and support needs. And instead of saying, let's fix all the areas that are weaker, a neurodiversity affirming practice says, let's go with those strengths, maximize those strengths and see if we can help support some of those other areas to improve whilst doing that. And that's quite a different way of looking at things. So it's, it's kind of counterintuitive almost but it works really well for us just because of the way that our brains are wired. We really can learn so much better when we're doing something we're interested and passionate about. And generally people aren't passionate and interested in things that they really have very high support needs in, but that's not always the case. It can be. So it will just, yeah, maximize our outcomes and minimize teacher stress because if you're going with those strengths and passions, the child is interested they're learning, they're on task, they're engaged, and there's none of those difficulties that you might encounter as a teacher if a child is struggling to do something they're not interested in, not engaged with. Geraldine, I'm so curious because I know you have been providing neurodiversity affirming practice and teaching in that way for years well before neurodiversity affirming practice was even a thing. So I'm, I, I would love to hear what you think about this. Okay, thanks, Cheryl. This is one of the benefits of being autistic, was that I had to run a classroom that I fitted into as well. Something I always say to teachers who are starting out is that acknowledging the complexity of inclusive practice across the board, and it's really hard to implement something that you've never seen. So a great place to start is to go into a classroom perhaps you've got a colleague even if they've only just got started with implementing neurodiverse strategies um neurodiverse, uh, neurodiverse friendly strategies to go and see if they will let you observe a lesson or see some of the changes they've made in their classroom and a lot of schools will allow teachers to do school visits as part of professional learning. So if you know the school where teachers like Trudes are really doing a, an amazing job, just visiting and you'll see a range of strategies in action. Some of those you'll be able to use in your classroom right away. Some of them are things to work towards and some of them you'll reject because every neurodiversity friendly classroom is going to look different because the children are different. And some, I think 
you will adapt because your needs are important too. So what you do needs to be you friendly as well. So I, I can't, I'm not going to be specific because there's so much you could say, yeah. Thank you, Geraldine, thank you. Trudy? Um, like Geraldine, I think, you know, one of my superpowers is the fact that I am autistic as well. So when it comes to supporting students in, in neurodiversity affirming ways, it's a lot of the times the strategies and supports that I put into practice for myself and role modeling to them and then allowing them the space to practice those and then carry them on into other classes. When I'm thinking about neurodiversity affirming ways, I look at four key areas. So we've got the environment. So are there any sensory needs that need to be considered? Is the lighting too bright? I wear a hat when I teach because the fluorescent lighting is too bright for me and becomes a distraction. Um, another thing could be noise. So the noise of the projector fan, the fans or aircon running in the classroom. Um, something that I use to combat that is I just play music, in, instrumental music in the background of my lessons. And I find that that helps support the students as well. Um, you know, temperature, like up here in Queensland, it's so hot and humid at the moment. And we're lucky that we have our classrooms that are air conditioned. And you find that once they come into the classroom and get into the cool air, they settle down and they're much more engaged in the learning because they're not being hot and bothered. Um, then the next thing I would look at is the language. So many of us autistic are quite literal. And if you say to throw a chair at the back of the room, they're gonna pick up a chair and throw it at the back of the room because they were told just chuck it at the back of the room, which had happened to me in a situation before I realized. And so we just need to be um, mindful of our language. Um, and when you say, you know, can you do a task? Um, they may not realize you're asking them to initiate or start a task because they're like, yeah, I can do that task, but you haven't told me to start that task yet. So they may not initiate that start. Um, then we're looking at the curriculum and the content. So if we can find out what their interests are in particular, we can um, modify the curriculum and even sometimes the assessment to be something that is of an interest to them. You know, I love Rubik's Cubes. I've always got them going. If my math teacher had have, you know, brought Rubik's Cubes into it, the algorithms of how to solve a Rubik's Cube, I think I would have been more engaging in the classroom. And then the, another thing is role models. So I am open with my students, with the staff that I work with about being autistic and ADHD and all the different strategies and supports that I use within my classroom for myself. And then when the students see me using those strategies, they go, oh, well, Miss, Miss can can do that. Maybe I can listen to music while I'm working as well. Or And then also I find that the mainstream students um, don't point out and say, oh, how come Johnny gets to listen to music? Because I allow them all to have access to the same thing. It could be fidgets, um, you know, and, and when they see that behaviour being used, then they're more likely to try and start to self-advocate for their own needs further down the track. Thanks, Trudy. The um the statement that comes to mind and 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 we hear it a lot around inclusion ed is you can't be what you can't see. And um, you know, I what what better way to role model um diversity in, in the workplace and in schools and inclusive education than to have autistic teachers being able to share that with their students as well and, and have that 
Um, so you, you just touched on something um, a minute ago, Trudy, that I want to dig into, and that's that some people um, do have a little bit of a perception that meeting the needs of neurodivergent students sometimes means that it takes away limited time, attention, resources from other students in the class. Um, and so I, I, my question to the panel is, how are these approaches and strategies beneficial for everyone? And I'm going to start with you, Emma, go to Geraldine and then Trudy again. So I think the fundamental neurodiversity affirming strategy is know your student, understand their strengths and support needs, their passions and interests, use their passions and interests to support them to grow and use their strengths to help them feel valued and valuable. And that's suitable for everybody. Like absolutely everybody that's suitable for. Um, some of the smaller strategies and things that you think about, like um, if somebody needs some environmental changes like fluoro lights are a problem. Well, changing those for LEDs or turning the light off is not gonna hurt anybody. Even somebody who has a vision impairment is going to see better with LED lights than they are with fluoro lights. Um, Trude's mentioned wearing a hat. Sometimes schools say, oh, but you know, it's not our policy to have, be able to have a hat in the classroom. It'll disrupt learning. Wearing a hat in the classroom doesn't disrupt learning. It disrupts the norm. But disrupting the norm is okay because many students have diverse needs. And so if we apply that for everybody, everybody benefits. And once you've had that initial hard work of getting to know all your students, which all good teachers do anyway, planning is easier, teaching is easier, and all the outcomes are better. I, I love that, that, you know, um, understanding your student and their strengths and passions and, and leveraging that. Geraldine, always welcome your contribution. Okay. This is a common issue that I've dealt with in, or talked with many teachers about. One of the, there are lots of levels of teaching strategies, and one of the most important is falling into the group of we call powerful pedagogies that really influence um, strong learning habits and help children to retain and process and use what they've learned. And a lot of the neurodiversity inclusive strategies are in that group, as I said. Um, they often have a social component, which means that the children collaborate. And when they're collaborating on their learning, that's a really good time to explicitly teach social skills, which helps all children. Just There are many, many children who don't have really great social skills and maybe slip under the radar. Um, I know in, no, I won't say that. I'm, diverge, I'm about to diverge. Uh, that's the ADHD bit. Um, there's the powerful pedagogies also include um, a lot of work on predictability. And if that if your environment is predictable, you feel safer and you're more able to learn. And the other thing I guess is that many, an example is like many teachers already display and discuss a lesson agenda with students. And they keep the agenda in the same place so the children always know where to look if they want to know what to do. 
it's always got the title of the subject which cues their thinking. It, you usually have two or three outcomes so that they know what they have to learn. And for neurodivergent students, this can be really important because you can't assume that anybody knows anything really. And in, especially when you've got children or students with um, attention deficits, they're forgetting in all the classroom talk and chatter exactly what it is they have to focus on. So having it written up there helps. If the teacher loses the class a little bit, say the class clown has made a joke, and yes, it was great and welcome and funny, it's easy to point to the outcomes they're meant to be working on to um, refocus attention. So it's all these little things, there are all these strategies that are very easy to implement in the classroom that help everybody and will raise achievement for everybody and, and support your neurodi neurodivergent students. Absolutely, thank you, Geraldine. It really is a, a situation, there's so many things that are actually beneficial for everyone. Trudy, I, I welcome your thoughts, particularly as a secondary educator and a high school teacher, which is a little bit different environment. Um, one thing that I would say is like, I challenge people to think about if they were hot and bothered and they had you know, spent a whole day doing things that were uncomfortable to them, how would they feel if they were put in an environment that was unfriendly to them, was too loud, too bright? And so emotionally and physically, they don't want to be participating in whatever it is. And, you know, I hate to say it, but as teachers, meetings are sort of the bane of our existence. And I know when we walk into a meeting, some days it's just like, oh, I'm dragging myself to get there. That's what our kids come like to classrooms sometimes. You don't know what happens to them on the playground. We don't know what happened, you know, before school, session one, session two, or, you know, which however they're broken up in primary school. And without having some of that information, the thing that I find is if I can work on their relationships and, and getting um, that happening with them, then once they're feeling calm, safe and supported, then they're more engaged in the learning and, and better able to take that in. But when they're heightened, having a bad day, you know, and we're not supporting their emotional needs at the time. And I know this can be challenging. I teach mainstream classes up to 28 kids in a, a woodwork and a metalwork workshop. So I completely get at times it can be challenging. Um, but if we just think about it, like, you know, at your worst point, how would you feel if you were coming into something that you weren't interested in doing? And then it puts it in the mindset, okay, I get what they're saying. You know, I understand why they're dragging their knuckles into the classroom. And um and if you can find a way, you know, even if you give them an, another activity that they're interested in to start just to settle them down for that first five or 10 minutes, then you'll find they're in a better position to be able to take in the information that you're giving them and complete the task. You know, I also have ADHD, get easily distracted, particularly around medication time. Um, you know, and sometimes, um, you know, having that, that first 10, 15 minutes just to, to do a different activity or an activity activity that I enjoy, it actually means that I'm more productive in the second half of, you know, the, th the, the second, third, third of the lesson or the time that I have to complete the task. Um, and, and Trudy, I'm, I know we've had this conversation many, many times as I've been building my own understanding um, that the energy levels, the, the sensory environment all has an impact, not only on a, a child's ability, a student's ability to learn and concentrate, 
but that that fluctuates day to day depending on things that are going on that may have nothing to do with the content that you're teaching or even what's going on in the the school environment so um Emma you you look like you really want to say something there (laughs) all of us as adults know that if we don't feel well we're not going to perform as well um but I think that because there are so many contextual factors that have an impact on the way that um, the autistic brain processes everything, that so many things can have an impact, not just negatively. So for example, if I'm not feeling great, I know there are particular activities I can do that will give me a burst of energy, a boost of energy, and they're nothing to do with energy but they just make me feel better and they engage my brain and I'm, I'm, I'm able to, to do things. There are also particular people or particular ways of talking that just can help. And we, I think there was a myth a long time ago, and hopefully people know it's a myth, that autistic people didn't have any empathy and that we didn't need emotional engagement with others. And the single most important thing in terms of getting outcomes out of your autistic students is having a positive interpersonal relationship with them Mm -hmm. and when you have that positive interpersonal relationship with them you can sense more as they're coming in the room okay this is just an off day like today let's not push it and when you do that what you do is you build a sense of I'm valued in that child that young person And then when they're having a good day, they're more likely to be able to be pushed. They're more likely to be able to to go outside of their comfort zone for you as well as for them. And that's where the the strengths and interests and the passions really come into it because that's when our brains are at their best is when we're engaged in in our passions. And so if you can support young people to be involved in their passions when they're having an off day, you might get something, but you're certainly not going to get the muddled heap in the floor um, that's really overwhelmed and overloaded. So it's quite a yeah, it's quite a different way of looking at it. But those relationships are super important. Thank you, thank you, Emma. Um, Geraldine, I could see you nodding. Do you want to add anything there, or I think Truth and Emma both said it all. Yeah. So I was just agreeing. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) High praise given Geraldine's experience in the classroom as well. Um, So a a question that's come through a little bit there is um, teachers might be a little bit unsure how they can meet the content and curriculum outcomes as well as meeting the needs of students on the autism spectrum. So how can we achieve both? Um, so Emma, I, I'm going to throw to you and I reckon Trudy will probably have something she wants yeah. to add as well. Trudy here. will have loads of stuff. Trudy can address the high school and I'll do primary and preschool. How's that? Sounds so good. in, in our early years and our primary schools, we used to do a lot of topic-based learning and we don't tend to do as much now, but topic-based learning is a really good way of, um, adjusting the curriculum for a young person so that you can meet curriculum outcomes whilst meeting their needs and you can teach absolutely anything 
through a topic. Um, and a really practical way of doing that is to work with the child and their family first to find out what is their current passion that they want to know more about, not the passion they already know everything about, passion they want to know more about. And then you can do a mind map. So what I do is I, I put the topic in the middle and then I look at the curriculum areas and I, I sort of draw lines for each of the curriculum areas. And then I'll think about, okay, what's a big picture question I can ask in each of those curriculum areas or cross curricula? And then the student can work on that as a project. And on the back of it, you can have the curriculum outcome um, that you're hoping for. And as the child achieves each one, you can tick them off. And this can be done whether children are using writing or they're using devices, whether they use speech or they don't use speech. So it can be done at any level. And the ACARA um, website now has some really good examples of ways that you can have curriculum outcomes using adjustments, not just for autistic students, but all kinds of students and a really good section on students who don't use speech and who um, are not yet writing and how you can still achieve literacy curriculum outcomes. So the Cara website is a really good resource now. And project learning, project learning all the way. I love it. Project-based learning. Thank you. Thank you. I'll switch to you in a minute, Trudy, but just remind everybody that the resources that we're talking about today and our, our colleagues at ACARA, uh, which is the Australian Curriculum um, Authority and Positive Partnerships, of course, we will link in um, the recording of the webinar as well. Make sure that you can have access to those as well as we work across the sector. Um, Trudy, I welcome your thoughts. So how can we meet the content and curriculum outcomes as well as meeting the needs of students, neurodivergent students and students on the spectrum? So I would say first have a look at the criteria that you're assessing. So the criteria you're assessing, the, the model that you, the mode that you're using might be a written form, but it doesn't actually say the kid has to put or the student has to put pen to paper. You just have to have evidence of them being able to uh, justify or explain or uh, draw comparisons. So in an English context, for example, they may be able to, instead of um, if there's someone who's a non-writer or not very good at writing, then instead of them having written it down, you could get, and, and schools have a lot of technologies these days, you could get an iPad and film the student verbally saying their answers. I've um, a number of times I've sat with students where I've read the question in a math context, read the question, and then I've asked them to verbally tell me what their answer is because they're struggling to get that answer down on paper. Uh, another thing that I have done numerous times is adjusting the the images, the the um, the length of text um, because to to something that is more accessible and achievable for them. For example. I had a year eight science student, we were learning about sexual reproduction, asexual reproduction, and the criteria stated they needed to do some form of sexual reproduction and some form of uh, asexual reproduction. This student was an autistic student, uh, refused to engage in any conversations or any lessons that we were talking about the uh, human reproduction and different male and female body parts. However, he loved cats. And so for him, I, in, in his assessment, I took out all of the human reproduction diagrams and questions in relation to it and supplemented that with a, with a cat diagram. And he had to 
with a, he was working with a teacher aide to learn all the different parts of the cat reproductive system, male and female. And so in his assessment, he was able to do that. So he's still meeting the criteria of the fact that it had to be some form of sexual reproduction. He just did cats, whereas the rest of the cohort did humans. So, you know, you can do things that way. Another thing that I've done in the past is I had um, some diverse learners and disengaged learners who were really interested in riding their scooter and going to a skate park. So I threw out the, the math curriculum and I changed it and rewrote it and we looked at 2D, 3D shapes. We looked at length, perimeter, area um, of different elements of a skate park. And then they had to create a skate park. So they used a computer software system to uh, get all the different elements of a skate park, put it in there. Then they had to measure the length, uh, perimeter, and area of um, three key parts of their skate park. And once they had successfully done all those, I had a carrot at the end of the term was that they were then allowed to, we went to a skate park. And when we went to the skate park, there was a person who was a former science teacher and he explained um, all the different parts of the skate ramps and how they how they use math and squares and rectangles and and triangles to um, to set it all up and that engaged the students and in at that time period they were coming to class more often because it was something they were interested in um, there was the reward at the end of it which again was something they liked but it also changing the vessel of the curriculum to something that they engaged in and the rest of the class also engaged with it because it was something different than what the norm was. Yeah, thank you, Trudy. That is, that's such a rich example of, you know, all the different elements around that thing that um, is of, of particular interest. Um, Emma, I know that um, you've done some work in the technology space and using technology to learn. So I'm really curious to hear your thoughts around that. So I think there are two sides to this. Um, there's the side where you go, yeah, of course we can use tech to learn, let's go for it. And then the side of, oh, but we can't have everybody on tech and there isn't enough tech in there. So we'll, we'll look at the positives first. So there's lots of different aspects to tech. It could be that the curriculum is being presented on a device like an iPad or a laptop or something, but it could also be that you're using a pen that is, um, a speech to text or a text to speech. So it can be um, an accessibility device as well. So we need to be very aware that a person who is autistic and has dyslexia is going to have struggles that are because of dyslexia, not because of autism. And they're going to have struggles because of autism and the two might interact some days and then those days will be less good days. So if we're using those accessibility devices, whether they're high tech or low tech to support them, then the issues around the dyslexia become less and you can focus on supporting through the curriculum adjustments for their, their autism. And then the side where it's sort of, okay, well, how do we get them off the tech? That's really common. And I know I've had teachers over the years say, well, how do we get them off the tech? They're never going to stop. And that's really the wrong question. The wrong question is, how do we let them know that they can use the tech device again at another time? Okay. Because particularly younger children, but many of us autistic adults too still have a thinking style that means that whatever is happening at the time we think is going to happen forever 
So if we're unhappy, we think we're going to be unhappy forever. If I'm on my laptop, I think I'm going to be on my laptop forever. Someone takes it away. I'm never getting it back. So if you want someone to get off a device, it's about finding a way to communicate that you, you'll be having it back again in half an hour or you're getting it back tomorrow or you can finish this project um, or keep going on this project the next time you've got a break. So that makes quite a difference. And many, many schools now, particularly high schools, everyone has a device, but it's not so common in primary, but there are grants and there are ways to trial devices um, before you buy. So you're not buying tech that doesn't work for a young person because everybody's different. Absolutely. Thank you, Emma. Um, that's such a good uh, a good note to to think on. Everyone is is different, and um, we we have a question, and it's come up in a couple of different questions in different ways. So I'm going to try and kind of pull it together, and that's a question from the audience about what can a teacher do when there isn't a diagnosis. So when uh, you know supporting students who don't actually know or like if they don't know about um, their diagnosis or they don't have a diagnosis. So um, Geraldine, I can see yeah. <laughs> you with something to say. So I really welcome your thoughts here. So when I first started teaching, very few people had any kind of diagnosis at all. And that's like a diagnosis is really a signpost to something but if you look at the student and their individual needs and strengths you don't actually need a diagnosis in many cases you work with the child and how they present and how they present in different aspects I think Trudes has already covered this at home at school with different teachers and so you can develop a profile it's just easier if you have it handed to you thank you yeah Trudy. Just on that, I was thinking that um, when it comes to supporting students who don't necessarily have a diagnosis, there's nothing stopping people from using differentiation strategies. So mm. things like chunking, things like giving them brain breaks, um, things by like reducing the length of um, the work they're doing, sentence starters. There's lots of differentiation um, strategies that can be used for everyone where you don't need to go through the full process of having a student on an individualised curriculum plan or an individualised edu educational plan. And, um, and they can be implemented for all students. And I find that the differentiation strategies that I specifically do uh, in my manual art classes, um, they are beneficial for the rest of the cohort for my of in, in the classes because it's scaffolding, it's chunking, it's breaking things down into one or two steps um, explanations, um, you know, putting questions on the board so they can remember that they're there or printing them out on a piece of paper. There's lots of little things that we can do where we don't have to go into that full in-depth space of getting, uh, doing formative assessment, getting resources, to, um, completing all of the, the admin side to support students with verified disabilities. I think it's also really important to remember that for the purposes of NCCD, so the Nationally Consistent Collection of Data and our Disability Standards in Education, you don't need to have a diagnosis. Yeah. It's an imputed condition. So if you have a suspicion or thought that is based in observation 
And what's happening in your classroom, that a child is unable to access the curriculum without some reasonable accommodations, then you make those reasonable accommodations. And I think one of the things that um, we work really hard on as inclusive educators is saying, get to know your student. You don't need a diagnosis to know what their strengths and support needs are. And one of the beauties, I talked about the positive partnerships planning tool before. One of the beauties about that is it doesn't have the word autism all over it or anywhere on it. So it can be used with families who are not seeking a diagnosis or families who aren't ready yet to share that with their young person and their young person can still be involved in the collaborative planning and children who don't have a diagnosis and will never get a diagnosis, but have different learning needs. So from a universal design for learning perspective, it's really about, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to change the way we present stuff? Or are we going to change the way we ask children to do a task? Or are we going to change the way we assess? But you do that for everybody. So it, at the diagnosis, like Geraldine said, is a signpost to understand that individual more. But if there isn't one, you can still work with that. Absolutely. I've also worked in a school where um, every child had a support document. And when you think about it, the IEPs and learning support documents, all a big part of them is the list of strengths and needs and interests. And that's pertinent for every single child. And then you could add, like, if they have a death in the family, that child's support needs are going to change significantly for a certain amount of time. So that goes on their support documents. So everybody in the school is aware, all the teachers are aware of it. Because, yeah, for all of the children, their needs change um, and you and they have to be taken into account. So it's quite appropriate to have supports for everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Geraldine. And um, and you both made some, some great points um, around that. And I'm really glad, Emma, that you brought up universal design for learning. And I'm really glad, Geraldine, that you brought up that needs change from day to day, depending on what else is going on in mm -hmm. the student's life. And, um, you know, that's the whole premise of Inclusion Ed. That's why we call it Inclusion Ed, because it's actually about universal design for learning. It's strategies that you can put in place for all students, regardless of what day it is, you know, to, to help them through that. Um, we have about seven minutes to the hour. So I'm going to go around, starting with you, Trudy, because I really want to know one key takeaway that you want teachers to know about supporting diversity in their classrooms. Um, biggest thing for me is having a conversation with a young person that you're trying to support or implement strategies for. If there's a saying in the autistic community in particular, nothing about us without us. Now, all too often we're told that we can't do something by people who don't necessarily have the same condition as us, so they may not understand. And they're looking from a deficit lens. They're not looking at it from a lens of our strength-based capabilities. And so by bringing the young person into the conversation, and I am aware that, you know, there are some people that are, that are nonverbal, use assistive technology to communicate, and also the younger students 
I'm not quite able to um, verbalize or explain why they're feeling a certain way. They, they may just feel that they're hyperactive or feel like they, they can't concentrate, but they can't articulate to you in words what they're thinking or feeling. In those circumstances, observations of, of what they're doing in the classroom and looking at the catalyst. So what led to the meltdown or the shutdown or the walkout of the classroom? Because there's often a, um, a, a catalyst that has led to that situation. And that could be something that has nothing to do with your class whatsoever. It could be a lunchtime issue. Could be they ran out of their favorite cereal at home. And so, you know, that might be playing on their mind. It could be quite simply they've forgotten to have their medication for the day. I had that the other day and, and this year was completely different. Um, today they had the meds and, and we had a great lesson and they were able to focus and concentrate. But always come back to that young person. And if that young person that you are trying to support is not able to communicate effectively what their needs are or what strategies that work with them, because they're not yet aware of them, then maybe speak to their parents and get information from their parents or carers. Um, you know, their specialist support, so OTs, uh, occupational therapists, and even sometimes phys physiotherapists um, in different spaces as well. Um, you know, getting some um, advice from them um, before you start doing it, because if they actually have some engagement in it and, and participate in the planning process, then they're more than likely going to implement those strategies themselves because they've had that important. They go, yes, this works for me or this is what I do at home when I'm not having a good day. And, and then you can carry those over into the classroom, but always, always, always ask the student. Ask the student. I love that. I love that. And uh, uh, I've got two little people. <laughs> and uh, I can tell you that when you ask the student, when you ask my little people, they'll tell you. <laughs> um, so I'm going to ask Emma the same question about one key takeaway, and then I'm going to go to Geraldine. So, Emma, what's one key takeaway? That I can't do one. I'm sorry. I have to do two. <laughs> do two. Do two. Two for so one. The first, the first one is that we want equity, not equality. Yes. So. What works for one student as an exact thing will not work for another. So I don't want to have to wear a hat because my colleague has to wear a hat. I need to wear my glasses. Not everybody else in the classroom needs to wear glasses. Um, they won't be able to see if they wear my glasses. I won't be able to see without them. And then my other takeaway, we, we actually haven't covered it all, but it's something that is fundamental we need to say what we mean and mean what we say because so often autistic individuals but also huge numbers of other students use language literally and they understand language literally so when you say we're going to work on this for 20 minutes and you stop them 15 minutes later or you're still going an hour later everybody's confused does this teacher ever mean what they say did I do something wrong? Have I not heard right? And all those thoughts impact learning. So saying mm. what you mean and meaning what you say also shows that you respect your students and you value their neurodiversity, that it's okay with you that that's the way they they use language. Oh, I love that. That's, that's words for life, isn't it? Say what we mean and mean what we say. Um, Geraldine, same question. What's one key takeaway? Okay, so I agree with 
with truths about conversations and listening. And for me, it's so important to listen to parents. They know their children best. They're the way that they, they cope with them all the time, their strengths at the good times and the difficult times. And they've got a massive amount of advice to share. Sometimes that advice might not sit with you very well. It might be completely against your teaching philosophy. But if you sit down and have a conversation and tease out what is meant, you can really often accommodate that. And I was thinking about one where I had a kindergarten child who was very hyperactive and literally did run up walls. And sometimes you need children to respond to you immediately. And I'd noticed his mum and she used to just say, very occasionally, Jono, just do it. And he would. And so I talked, I would, wasn't comfortable with that because it wasn't very supportive. But I, I talked to her about it and she said, oh, no, there are times when you agree. There are times when he just has to. So I talked to Jono about it. And he said, oh, my mum unlocks me. And what he meant was that he gets caught in this pattern of behaviour. And when he hears those words said in that way, he's able to break free of it. And I never would have come up with that and never would have thought of that. But it was, and he also knew, she only said it when there was danger or something really important. So he said, she says it when we go into the doctor because you can't be late. Otherwise, everybody's going to be late. And so it just really brought home to me that those things are important, that they do help. And they can get you, you can't overuse them, but they can get you unstuck as well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much Geraldine and and on the in the spirit of saying what we mean and meaning what we say I I just want to be conscious that we are on the hour and we just have a couple of minutes of wrap up to go so we ask that you just stay with us just a couple more minutes longer well I thank you again Emma Trudy and Geraldine for generously sharing your knowledge expertise and insights with us tonight um, there is obviously a lot to unpack here and we've just scraped the surface. I feel like there might be other webinars in the future on this topic. Um, I always learn so much from you and I come away with so much to think about and reflect on. And today was no different. I wasn't expecting it to be. Um, and I can see from some of the comments and questions that our audience absolutely feel the same. Uh, I'd also like to thank all of our listeners for joining today. Uh, we know you have busy lives, especially at the beginning of the school year. And we thank you for giving us your time and attention this afternoon. We hope you found this webinar informative and insightful, and we encourage you to keep this professional learning going by registering on Inclusion Ed. Registration is free and it's jam-packed with evidence-based and research-informed teaching strategies and resources co-designed for and with teachers to help you support your diverse learners. Check it out at inclusioned.edu.au. You can also follow our Inclusion Ed community Facebook and support your teaching community by taking part in sharing and learning in our community of practice.
Uh, but for now, thank you to everyone and have a lovely evening. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find out more by going to inclusioned.edu.au to access a suite of free resources to help you support diverse learners in inclusive classrooms. You can also join the Inclusion Ed Community of Practice Facebook group for regular posts about our practices, as well as strategies and ideas from other education professionals.